This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to the Check the Locks podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we get to this week's case, as always, Olivia, so good to see you. How are you? You just had a little vacation. How was it? How was your trip? Oh, my trip was amazing. I ended up in the um, Poconos Mountains, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Pennsylvania. Um, had a house by the lake, got to spend some girl time with some of my friends. How are you, John? I hear you went camping. I did. It was uh, a little out of the norm for me. Uh, not a huge camper, but I'm glad that you had a great time. In the Poconos, was it like sweltering hot like it was here in Tennessee? Because in that tent, it was like 85 degrees at like 9.30 at night, and I was just a sweat machine. It was absolutely unbearable in that heat. So did you have the same thing going on? Oh, no. We actually had great weather, but I'm shocked that you went tent camping. That's tough. That's real tough in the heat. Not only did I go tent camping, everyone that we went with had, like, cots and, like, air mattresses. This family slept on the ground like pioneers. (laughs) We were straight tree root rocks. So, you know, in the two nights that we slept there, I probably got... Six hours sleep total between both nights, but it was a lot of fun. We went swimming in the creek, and kids had a great time. It was it was a whole lot of fun. That's awesome. How's your back today? Today is okay. Yesterday was okay. My knee, uh, as we were talking about before the show, I'm an old man, so uh, <laughs> we were swimming in the creek, and in the creek there is you know rocks, and you hit little patches of mud and stuff like that when you're walking through. And Monday, my knee was really feeling it. It was a little hard to walk, but I'm better now. I, you know, did my icy hot, uh, my old grandpa regimen, and back to good. You're back and ready to record this podcast. That's right, and I am super excited for this week's episode. Thank you guys for joining us. Hopefully, you are excited as well. I have to tell you, Olivia. I had never heard about this story, and it really kind of grabbed me right away. So I am super excited to jump into it and share it with you. You think we should just go ahead and jump on in? Yeah, let's go right in. After kind of reviewing your notes, I don't think I've ever heard of this one, but the name sounds familiar. So I'm interested to see what this case is all about. Yeah, and it was pretty recent. You know, we've done a lot of cases from the 70s and in the 80s. So this is fairly recent, but uh, definitely excited to jump into it. So today we are talking about the Spokane serial killer. So our story begins in Spokane, Washington. Now Spokane is normally a quiet community where many in the tech industry, healthcare workers, and Air Force personnel tend to reside. But in August of 1997, the community was shocked when the bodies of 16-year-old Jennifer Joseph and 20-year-old Heather Hernandez were discovered on the same day. Now, it's important to remember that at the time, the average number of murders in Spokane was roughly five a year. So two murder victims found on the same day was definitely a cause for concern, and the community was rightfully frightened. 
Police immediately wondered if the murders may be connected and began to look at other unsolved cases. In June of 1996, the body of 39-year-old Shannon Zielinski had been discovered, and in May of 1997, Melody Murphy had been reported missing. Detectives now believe that they were dealing with one killer. Then, in November of 1997, police found the body of 28-year-old Darla Scott. She had been found shot with a plastic bag over her head. The following month, the bodies of Lori Wasson and Sean McClenahan were found on the same day. Both women had been sex workers and were again found shot with a plastic bag over their head. Two months later, 41-year-old Sonny Oyster was found shot to death with a plastic bag around her head. Oyster was also a sex worker who had a history of drug abuse. Many of these women knew each other due to their involvement in sex work, and police now fear that they had a serial killer on the prowl. So, Olivia, I can't imagine being in this small town, especially if you're a police officer there, you get five killings a year roughly, and you know, you get one year where you're just starting to see bodies pile up. I'm sure it is very nerve wracking because you're like, this isn't normal for us. That's exactly what I was thinking. I think I counted about seven different names of bodies that have disappeared and they only have five murders a year. That's insane. Yeah. And they also believe that the killer was targeting sex workers because of the high risk lifestyle. And to put it into perspective, in a two year period, 12 victims have been discovered. So you go from, you know, five a year to 12 over the course of two years. If I was a police officer, I'd be like, what is happening? Like, what's changed? Yeah, and it seems like a few of them had been found shot with the plastic bag over their head, so it definitely seems that the behavior of this killer is repetitive. Yeah, definitely a signature. Now, what else was interesting was that the majority of the victims had been left in rural areas, but some had actually been left downtown in the city of Spokane itself. Surprisingly, most of the bodies weren't hidden, but located close to the road. It seemed as if the killer really didn't care if the victims were found or not. That's interesting. It's almost like I wonder if he lives outside of the city and then kind of spread them out as he's like going from downtown where he picks up these potential sex workers and then murders them. And then sometimes he leaves them and sometimes he's it's almost like he wants to take them closer to where he lives, maybe. I think that's a good thought process as I was going through. You know, the one thing that really stuck out when I started my research was that these are sex workers. So to me, it almost seemed like it doesn't matter where I leave them. People don't care. Right. That's kind of the thing that stuck with me. Uh, But I think you're right. It could be just, you know, convenience or maybe a combination of the two. Now, in 1998, with pressure mounting to find the killer, the police put together a task force with the sole purpose of catching the Spokane serial killer. Police found getting sex workers to cooperate with their investigation would be a challenge. Because of the historical relationship between the police and sex workers, trust would need to be built. The task force assigned two officers to patrol every night and talk with people working the streets. Now, East Sprague, the area where the victims were picked up, is a small area only about three blocks long. Detectives felt sure that someone working in that area would have seen the killer. Police also hoped that he may have already been on file, possibly for a parking ticket or soliciting a prostitute. Detectives began to build a database of tickets and arrests in the area, hoping that the killer may show up more than once. As police continued to hunt for the killer, the physical evidence was being analyzed in the lab. An analysis of each victim was conducted to attempt to locate hair, fibers, or anything that may link the killer to the victim. Police also had DNA evidence and ballistics evidence. FBI profilers were brought in as well. They determined that the killer placing plastic bags over the victim's head was not only a signature, but also used to prevent the spray of blood when the victims were shot. So kind of thinking, I don't want to make a mess, but I also want to make sure I'm letting everybody know that like this is my work. Right. A signature, but it's also practical. Yeah. That's called premeditated murder. That is correct. Profilers also believe the bodies were not hidden because the killer didn't believe he would ever be associated with the murders. At this point, for the women working the streets, the serial killer was the only thing that they could think of. Even at the height of bodies turning up, women were still getting into cars with the killer. This told profilers that the killer was probably very normal looking and appeared to be non-threatening. Earlier in the investigation, a tip came in that Jennifer Joseph had last been seen getting into a white Corvette. Police believe that the Corvette could have been the last vehicle Jennifer had ever gotten into. They began to compile a list of every Corvette registered in Spokane County, eastern Washington State, and northern Idaho. 
That information was then compared against a list of names that appeared in the database police created about arrests and tickets in East Sprague. This search revealed several names, and police began interviewing the suspects on the list. One of the names on the list, Robert Lee Yates Jr., was an unlikely suspect. Yates was a decorated veteran, pilot, and family man. In order to rule him out as a suspect, detectives asked Yates to provide a DNA sample. Yates declined, stating that the request was too extreme for a family man. So I wanted to stop right there. If you're a family man, you're on this list of potentially picking up women in this known sex worker prostitution area. I feel like if you didn't do it, yeah, here's my DNA. Like I want to clear myself and also prove to my family that this isn't me. Absolutely. If you are such a family man, then it would be no big deal to give the police your DNA so that they can see your innocence. I feel like declining makes you feel guilty. Like if someone came to my door, like, oh, here you go. Here's my saliva. How do you want it? Right. People are doing it for 23andMe, all that stuff all day. Like if you didn't do anything, you're you're good to go. I also want to talk about this search. Like how much technology has changed over time. You know, we talk about these earlier crimes, how like the DNA analysis wasn't even invented yet. And so here they're basically saying, okay, we got this car. We can narrow it down to tickets in this particular part of town. Like, I just think that's so impressive. Yeah, especially when we've done all these older cases where it's like detectives aren't working with each other across police departments because records aren't linked and things like that. I think that's a really good observation of just like even in what is this, 1997, 1998, how far that technology has jumped. Yeah, it's crazy. It means like I feel like now how do we even have people that are guilty walking around as a free person? Yeah, it seems like it would be very hard to get away with. Yeah. So because Yates declined, police then decided to focus on his vehicle, the white Corvette. Now, at this point in the investigation, Yates had actually sold that car to another individual. Police were actually able to locate it and do a quick physical inspection. Now, because fibers were found on several of the victim's bodies, police decided to pull fibers from the vehicle to test against. The fibers pulled from Yates' vehicle closely matched those found on Jennifer Joseph's body. Because of this, police were actually able to get a search warrant for the Corvette. Now, to the detective's surprise, bloodstains were actually still visible in the vehicle. Police also found a button that matched Jennifer's clothing underneath the seat. This was the link that police needed to get a warrant to obtain DNA from Robert Lee Yates. Okay, so Yates claims that he's a family man, but then the police continue to further investigate his white Corvette. Do you think that the police thought it was just a coincidence that he had sold his Corvette around the same time of these murders? Or do you think they called Yates bluff and was like, oh, this dude kind of seems guilty when they're talking to him. And then they proceed to check the Corvette. If I was a police officer and I knew that you've been in this area, I know that someone has you know, said, hey, we've seen a car that matches your car. Give us a DNA test to rule you out. We don't think you're the kind of guy, but we just want to get that DNA test to rule you out. And then you decline. And then after you decline, you then sell your vehicle that we were interested in. To me, that would be a motivator to be like, this guy's hiding something or trying to get rid of something. So now why I didn't think it was you in the first place. Now I'm going to focus extra hard on you because these are all red flags to me. Yeah, absolutely. So with the evidence collected from the Corvette and getting Yates' DNA, police were able to arrest Yates on April 18, 2000, and charge him with the murder of 16-year-old Jennifer Joseph. While police were only able to arrest Yates for the single homicide, they believed him to be responsible for many others. Because of his military background and family man persona, Yates' arrest shocked the community. A former sex worker who had a relationship with Yates couldn't believe it because he seemed so, quote, overly normal. This same sex worker even recalled having conversations with Yates about who the Spokane killer could be. To police, the idea that you could sexually assault and murder someone in cold blood and then walk into your home like nothing had happened 20 minutes later was absolutely terrifying. At this point, police began digging just a little bit deeper into who Robert Lee Yates was. Robert Lee Yates Jr. was born on May 27, 1952 in Spokane, Washington. Yates was raised in the small town of Oak Harbor. His father, Robert Yates Sr., was a blue-collar worker employed at a naval base. 
Gates Jr. had a close relationship with his father and has been said to idolize him. Now, Yates Jr. had a normal high school experience. He played high school baseball. While he did well in his schoolwork, he has been described as an average student. While the family seemed all-American and normal on the surface, they had a dark history. Before Yates was born, his grandmother murdered his grandfather with an axe. After that, she was committed to a psychiatric hospital. At the age of six, Yates was sexually assaulted by a neighbor boy. The incident was kept secret and never reported to the authorities. After graduating high school in 1970, Yates met his first wife. So before we go into that, what we were talking about last week, childhood trauma. trauma. That's all we can say is childhood trauma. If you are listening to this podcast, if you listen to last week's podcast, work out your trauma, pay somebody, go see somebody. You can do it from your phone. BetterHelp does not sponsor us, but you can do that. Work through your trauma because if you don't, bad things can happen. So I just thought that was interesting because we spent so much time talking about it last week that it's like, here's just another example of somebody going through this terrible thing when they were a kid and then doing something terrible as an adult. I feel like our next little competition is going to be, how do we find a case of someone who is actually doesn't have any trauma, semi-normal, but is a murderer? Do you think those people exist? I think so. <laughs> if Okay, I'm putting this out to everybody in the Facebook group. If you know of a case where the person was completely normal and then just snapped, send it to us in the Facebook group, uh, shoot it to us on Instagram, however you want to do it. But I think that might be a challenge. If we can find it, I think we might have to celebrate that moment because- It's like everything that we've done so far is childhood trauma. I do something terrible as an adult. So definitely a a trend going. Yeah. And I want to say we use that term normal very loosely because I don't think any of us are quite normal. I know I have a few loose screws. I've got a whole screw drawer and no (laughs) screwdriver. Now, after meeting his first wife, they were married in 1972, but they separated 18 months later. While married, the couple relocated to Walla Walla, Washington, where Yates would spend his free time alone in the woods hunting, hiking, and fishing. The parents of Yates' first wife described him as a loner, and despite being married to their daughter, they feel they never got to know him. Before the divorce was finalized, Yates had begun a relationship with another woman, Linda Brewer. In December of 1974, their first child, Sasha, was born. In the summer of 1975, Yates began working at Washington State Penitentiary as a corrections officer. In 1976, Yates enlisted in the U.S. Army in Seattle. He loved flying helicopters and was so good at it, he actually became what's called a teacher's teacher, meaning Yates would instruct others on how to teach flying. That same year, his second child, Sonia, is born. In 1980, Yates became a warrant officer at Fort Rutgers in Alabama. Later that year, he and his family were stationed in Hanau, Germany. During their time in Germany, the couple's third child, Amber, is born. In 1984, Yates and his family returned to the States, and he was again stationed at Fort Rutgers in Alabama. In 1989, the couple gave birth to their first son, Kyle. Now, it is noted that around this time, Yates started to neglect his daughters and place more of his attention on his son. But when we're going through this list, I mean, so far, everything about this guy, what is that, five kids, military man, taking his family with him when he's stationed out of the country, nothing popping up as far as red flags, at least not to me. No, nothing at all. So in 1991, Gates was stationed at Fort Drum in New York. Then in 1995, Gates again moved back to Fort Rutgers until he was honorably discharged from the Army. In 1996, the family moved to Spokane, Washington, and that is when the murders started to take place. In 1998, Yates was stopped by police for having a known prostitute in his vehicle. Yates told police it was his daughter's friend and he was driving her home. Now, two days later, Yates' 19-year-old daughter filed a police report stating that he had struck her and he was charged with misdemeanor assault. But it wasn't until family members were interviewed that a darker picture of Yates was painted. Yates was described as being domineering, abusive both emotionally and physically, and as running his home with an iron hand. Yates was emotionally distant at home and presented himself differently in public. So what it sounds like is somebody who is really trying to put this good guy persona on, but secretly at home, he's kind of a monster to everybody that's close to him, you know? Have you seen the movie Mr. Brooks? I have not. So this story reminds me a lot of that movie. And the only reason I know about this movie really 
First off, it's a Kevin Costner movie, and I think he's a great actor. But it was also filmed in Shreveport, which is next to my hometown. And so when the movie came out, it was like, oh, we have to watch all these movies. Anyways, he's like the stand-up man, and he's a serial killer. And so this reminds me a lot of kind of what's happening is how do we know he would sneak out? There's a scene which made me think of it is he sneaks out and he goes home and crawls in bed with his wife. So it's like, how do you how do you just act like nothing's wrong? Or how do you as a spouse not know that something suspicious is happening? I guess is what I'm getting at. Oh, yeah. My wife and I, we do the share your location because we're both just like, you don't have anything to hide. Nothing to hide. And also it's like, I think we're both like, what if something terrible happens to you? So I want to be able to see like if you're in a car accident or something. Oh yeah. <laughs> I get off the phone all the time or my mom will be like, yeah, I saw your location. Like she just tells me that she like stalks me at times. Yeah. Carol will do that to me too. Like I'll go to get dinner and like if it's a long wait at the place or whatever, she'll be like, I just checked your location just to make sure you're on your way home with dinner. I just want to know where you're at. I'm like, yeah. all right, like that's, that is fair. That makes sense. Yeah. My mom be like, yeah, I knew you were at work. Oh, okay. Thanks. <laughs> now, at this point, detectives spent the next month searching the Yates home, looking for evidence that would link him to the other murders. They searched family members' clothing, hoping fibers from a victim would match fibers found on one of the family members' clothing. Their idea behind this is that, you know, maybe Yates had committed a crime. He came home. He hugged his daughter, hugged his wife. Whatever fibers, hair were on his clothes, then transferred to, you know, one of his family members. Now, Olivia, what's strange is that each victim was found with a different type of vegetation on them. So it could be like a tree leaf or like flowers from a certain type of plant, something like that. And in Gates's backyard, all of the types of vegetation that was found on the victims, that same vegetation type was found in his backyard. Now, it's really weird because police don't know how or why he would put that vegetation on the victims. It's nothing that they've ever been able to answer, but it's just very weird. You know what I mean? Especially it's like, oh, I found this victim. She's got, you know, this kind of tree leaf on her and this tree is in his backyard. Everything matches. It's just, it's very weird. Yeah, that's really interesting. If Robert Yates Jr. is still alive, I'd be interested to know, write him a letter and say, hey, why'd you do that? Yeah, it's it's very weird. And I guess he hasn't really said much about it. Um, so it might be one of those things that, you know, we just never know. Mm. Now, around this time, detectives actually get their biggest break in the case. On August 1st, 1998, Yates picked up Christine Smith, a prostitute in the East Sprague area. Now, Smith remember asking Yates if he was a psycho killer when she got in the car with him. As they were driving out to a secluded area... On the way, Yates told Smith that he was a helicopter pilot for the National Guard. He told Smith, I'm not a murderer. I've got five kids. I wouldn't do that. Once they arrived in that secluded location, Yates paid Smith $40 for oral sex. She then felt a blow to the back of her head. Yates attempted to rob her, but even though she was stunned, Smith managed to escape the vehicle. She immediately went to the hospital, and she was told that she had been cut on the head with a knife. But... In the year 2000, after a car accident that required an x-ray, bullet shrapnel was actually found in her head. She had been shot in the head but was too shaken to realize it at the time of the attack. Smith saw Yates' picture in the newspaper and immediately called the police to share what had happened to her. I can't imagine going through something like that, then finding out later that you were shot in the head, but like seeing this dude's picture in the newspaper and being like, that's the guy that did this to me. I, I can't imagine what that would feel like. Yeah, that is crazy. I'm just kind of sitting here with my jaw open. I mean, she thought she had, she was told that she was cut in the head with a knife. Then to come to find out this whole time you've been shot in the head and like lived to tell the tale about it. I mean, I know it happens that you can be shot in the head and, you know, of course the bullets don't penetrate the brain, but that's crazy. Yeah, and it must have been like a small caliber firearm or she just got very, very lucky. But just the idea that you were in a car with a person, because I'm sure if you were a sex worker or prostitute or whatever you want to call it, you are in dangerous situations probably more frequently than your normal person. But to be in a situation like that and then to escape that and then find out that like you could have been that next victim, I'm sure is something that shakes you in a way that a lot of things couldn't do. Yeah. And I also just kind of want to be sarcastic here for a second and be like, do you honestly think he's going to be like, oh yeah, I'm the Spokane killer. I'm killing all these women. Get in my car. 
Yeah, and I don't know if it was just like her maybe trying to feel him out, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I'm being, sure it was definitely conversation like that. But, right. You know, I just had to say. You know, just been like, you're not the killer, are you? Yeah. You're not going to kill me, are you? Because <laughs> right. somebody's killing a lot of people in this area. Yeah. So. A lot of women like me. You're sure it's not you. Yeah. Well, on May 31st, 2000, one month after his arrest, Gates was arraigned on seven counts of murder and one attempted murder. Gates originally pled not guilty. Now, again, originally it was assumed that prosecutors would push for the death penalty, but to try Yates with all the murders at once, prosecutors would have to prove what's called common scheme. This means that the prosecution would have to prove that Gates had a plan to go after one specific group of people. However, for Yates' crime to fall under common scheme, he would have had to have murdered all of the prostitutes that he had been with, and he didn't. But the prosecution still wanted to push for the death penalty. Now, surprisingly, afraid of being sentenced to death, Yates' attorney offered the prosecution a deal, which I think is interesting that I don't think we've run across this in any of the episodes that we've done where the killer or the accused is like, hey, I want to cut a deal with you. Usually it's, you know, we're deliberating for an hour. You're guilty. See you later. In return for a life sentence, Gates would not only plead guilty to the eight that he was charged with, but help solve six others, some going back over two decades to 1975. Okay, John, I have a question here. Yes. In my opinion, and if I was this killer and I was sitting on trial for this, what makes getting the death penalty, because people can sit on death row forever, versus a life sentence I don't really see which, what's the benefactor here. Why would he be like, I'm afraid to get the death penalty, but I'll plead guilty and help you solve them if I can get a life sentence instead? I think everyone is afraid to die. I think that everyone has a fear of mortality and knowing that like someday your ticket is going to be punched. And even for someone like Robert Lee Yates, I'm sure the idea of being in prison I mean, you can make friends in prison. You can read books in prison. You can eat food in prison. You can get a college degree while in prison. I mean, you can do a lot of things, but you're stuck in prison. I'd be more afraid of like the torture and the the life than, but I guess I'm also in a different mindset of not being afraid of death. You know, I don't know. I just don't see, that's interesting to me, why one would choose one over the other when they're both terrible. Yeah, and I think that might even reflect on like what you do in your day-to-day life as a nurse practitioner. You know, I'm sure that you run into death probably more than the normal person working at a desk nine to five. You know what I mean? So I don't know if maybe that plays into it, but I'm just wondering if it's, you know, I can still have people come visit me. Like even if I was in prison behind these walls and I was never going to be outside these walls again, would I rather be alive inside these walls with a life or not exist anymore? Well, to your family and friends, I would assume he's not going to exist at all. But I get what you're saying. He'll just make new friends, I guess. But, I mean, he's pleading guilty to eight, and he's going to be like, oh, I'm just going to tell you I'm guilty, but I'm not really guilty, maybe. But here's how six others died. Yeah, and it's uh, it definitely gets a little twisted, so I'm excited to kind of jump into it because I think you're going to be like, what is going on as we go through? So before the deal was accepted— prosecutors made Yates take a polygraph test to which he confessed to all of the murders. Now in their test results, they said, Hey, Yates is indicating that he's being truthful. He killed all these people. However, the results of the polygraph became controversial when the spokesman review newspaper obtained a copy of the results and sent them to other polygraph experts. Now, according to these other experts, the results of the test were inconclusive. They could not say after reviewing the results that he was telling the truth completely or if you know, there was some sort of fabrication there, which you know, obviously to the authorities was upsetting because they're like, we've got this guy. He's admitting to it. The polygraph says, and now you're trying to discredit this polygraph. So to the Spokane authorities, they were very vocal about being upset with this. Yeah, I would just say, mind your business, stay out of it. Like he's already confessed. Not only has he confessed, but he's actually offering to help us solve other crimes that we know that he did. Right. And then you just have someone sitting here basically saying, oh, he didn't do these. He's lying. So then it makes the whole case as a whole seem suspicious. 
Yeah. Now, at this point, the police were torn. They wanted to get answers to these unsolved cases, but this seemed like the exact type of case that warranted the death penalty. So prosecutors would not agree to the deal until talking to the victim's families first. I also think that's very important when it comes to these cases. I've noticed that a lot of times watching, you know, the crime shows when they are interviewing families and keeping them apprised of what's happening, you know, I think that's important. It's like, okay, so we've got this guy and this is what we want. This is what he's willing to offer. And are you okay with that? Do you, will you feel that justice has been served if we, as the prosecution, agree to say, okay, we'll take your plea deal? You're 100% right. And overall, the families supported the life in prison without the possibility of parole. The lead detective actually said that they did a tally and 19 family members were okay with life in prison without the possibility of parole and 12 wanted the death penalty. So because the majority said we're okay with this to help get answers to these other questions, they decided they would take the plea deal. Now what's interesting is that while they did take the deal, the prosecution and the detectives still had to be strategic and they purposely left their strongest case out of the plea agreement. Now, this case was the murder of Sean McClenahan. McClenahan was 39 years old. Her body was found in December of 1997, and police had fingerprints, DNA, ballistics, all tied to Robert Lee Yates Jr., and if for any reason he wasn't honest or deliver on his end of the plea deal, because they didn't include this in that deal, they could retry him for this murder specifically, and they could put the death penalty on the table. Which then makes it not double jeopardy. Right. And strategically, I can understand why they did that. I do know that the family of Sean McLennan was not happy with it because it was almost like, oh, you're charging him for all these crimes, but my sister, you know, my daughter doesn't exist in this. Right. It's almost like justice wouldn't be served for their family. But I also get what they're doing, which is kind of smart on their part. I hate that that happened to that family, but I mean... Seems pretty sneaky to me. Well, you don't want to give this guy the opportunity to take this plea deal and then try to work one over on you and you have nothing mm. in your back pocket. You yeah, know? absolutely. So as a part of the plea agreement, Yates confessed to six additional murders and the details of some of these murders shook prosecutors and police, especially when they learned of the murder of Patrick Oliver and Susan Savage. Now, I don't know if you remember towards the beginning when we were diving in a little bit deeper into who... Robert Lee Yates was, you may recall that I mentioned that he would spend a lot of time in the woods, hunting, hiking, doing target practice, things like that. In 1975, Patrick Oliver was 21 and Susan Savage was 22 when Yates stumbled upon them at Mill Creek in the woods near Walla Walla, Washington. The pair were picnicking when a 23-year-old Yates approached them and shot them both dead. Oliver is the only man Yates is believed to have killed. This goes back to he was still married to his first wife. This is, you know, 1975. He's out doing target practice, just walking through the woods. He finds this couple and is just like, I'm going to kill him. Shoots them both in the head and then leaves. And they never find out who did it until, you know, 2000 when he's trying to make this plea deal. So, wow, that's a long time ago. It's a long time to get away with something. Gates also confessed to the 1988 murder of Stacy Hahn, whose body was found in Skagit County, Washington. Hahn was also a sex worker and was found shot in the head. Gates also confessed to the murder of Shannon Zielinski and Heather Hernandez. The only missing woman unaccountable for was Melody Murfin. Without her body, there was no deal. So Yates drew a map to her grave. Now, at this point, because of where the other bodies had been found, police were ready for a full-on outdoor search, but they were surprised when they were led back to Yates' home. Melody Murfin was found buried under a flower bed in Yates' lawn. And Yates' wife had no questions, comments, concerns as to why there was a six-foot-long deep hole. First, you want to get super creepy on it. The flower bed was directly outside their bedroom window. Oh, my gosh. And he had buried her in the flower bed and then filled everything back in, flowers, everything like that. So it would just be like, you know, we have a flower bed in the front of our house. You know, we've got bushes, stuff like that. It would just be as if, you know, 
I'd drop somebody in a hole, cover them back up, and then put all my mulch back down and everything like that. This man is crazy. Authorities were shocked at how bold and fearless Yates had been while committing these terrible crimes. They were also upset because, I don't know if you remember, they spent over a month investigating Yates's home. Yet somehow they managed to miss Murphy's body. Now, because of the plea deal, prosecutors didn't have any leverage to try to get Yates to talk about his methods or motives. So we never get to find out why, right? Like we know there was childhood trauma. We can speculate maybe this is what happened. But from him, because we gave him the plea deal, there was no incentive to be like, tell us why you did it. We'll give you a, you know, a break or something like that. So we don't know. Even though the agreement led to solving six murders, it was hard for the families to accept that Gates had essentially called the shots in his own sentencing, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, this guy killed my family member and he was able to leverage himself a deal because he killed more people and the police just didn't know. So I can, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can imagine myself being a family member being like, well, I'm great. Well, it's great that I know who did this. And that he's going to prison, but it also sucks that I'm not going to get those answers because of it. I could see where the families would be disappointed because at the end of the day, like he has so much control and it looks like he is in control of the situation and wants the power and to be able to manipulate the situation, which is what he did with these murders. He wanted the power and the control over these women that he was hiring, you know, as sex workers. And then he overpowers them and murders them. And then the one young man who, you know, he shot back in 1975. But I could see where the families would be frustrated. It's like, take away his power. Take away his power and treat him as such the prisoner he is and the criminal that he is. Yeah. And, you know, I think you bring up a really good point, especially when we're talking about the childhood trauma. You know, at six years old, he was molested. You know, somebody asserted that control or power over him. So again, we don't ever find out why from him, but in conversations that we've had before about, you know, the trauma aspects and stuff like that, that makes a lot of sense where if you feel like it in that young age or like Jerry Buck Inman from the Bikini Strangler episode last week, his father, his grandfather took that power, made him feel powerless. And so you get older and then you make people feel powerless. I think it's, you know, an interesting parallel. Yeah, exactly. On October 26, 2000, Robert Lee Yates stood in court to enter his plea. Yates pled guilty to 13 murders and the attempted murder of Christine Smith. Then, for the first and only time, Yates addressed the families of his victims. Yates said, Nothing I can say will erase the sorrow, the pain, and the anguish that you feel and that I've caused in your life. I've caused much sorrow, much pain. You can't know how much pain I know I've caused for all of you in my family. I've taken away the love, the compassion, and the tenderness. Yates then apologized to the family and friends of each of his victims. Yates also claimed that he had found God in his struggle to overcome his guilt and shame for what he had done. After Yates addressed the families, the families then had the opportunity to address Yates. The family member of one victim told Yates that the guilt and shame he feels was for himself and not his victims. Another told Yates simply they hope he burns in hell. Robert Lee Yates was sentenced to 408 years without parole. I think 408 years is literally the most years I've ever heard of that someone has been sentenced to. Yeah, that's like crazy life sentences. And then what was there 13 of them? So con like consecutive, consecutive back to back. Life. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. I don't think I've really ever heard of anyone being sentenced to anything even that significant, like that long. Yeah. And because he pled guilty, there was no jury trial or anything like that. And the judge essentially told him, like, you're going to have a very long time to sit and think about what you've done to these families and the crimes that you've committed. You know, hopefully you're going to carry with you for the rest of your life. Because this is what your life is going to be now. Yeah. But surprisingly, this still wasn't over. Gates still had to stand trial for murder in Pierce County because they rejected the plea deal. Gates was charged with the murder of Connie Ellis and Melanie Lewis. Their bodies were discovered near Fort Lewis near Tacoma, where Gates did National Guard duty. I've been there. My friend was stationed there in Tacoma. In oh, the cool. Army. Yeah. That's awesome. Little personal connection. 
I've even stayed in the barracks. I mean, that's where she lived. I had to sleep in her little dorm room. Oh, that's very cool. Small world. Right. Now, in Pierce County, prosecutors would seek the death penalty. Yates pled not guilty and said that he had confessed to all of the murders that he was responsible for. But authorities weren't convinced. The trial in Pierce County began August 12, 2002. Yates was found guilty on two counts of aggravated murder and was sentenced to death by lethal injection. So this guy's got 408 years and then gets the death penalty on top of it. This is crazy. And it goes back to our conversation about power and control and how I feel like the families wanted the prosecutors to take that away. And I would just be like, if I was that family member, I'd be like, karma is a You know, it's like, okay, you think you're going to come in here, take control of the situation. You're going to get to live your life sentence in prison and continue on with your life. But then here we go. Now you have to, now you're on death row anyways. Yeah. And I'm there with you. I can only imagine, you know, if you were one of those 12 that were like, no, he should get the death penalty to not get that. And then to have him go to Pierce County and Pierce County is like, no, 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 no. We don't play that. Like lethal injection. We're going to stick him. Yeah, I'm loving this case. On November 4th of 2002, Yates arrived on death row at Washington State Penitentiary, where he was once a guard, which is kind of, you know, full circle, you know what I mean? Yes, yes. Yates appealed the death penalty verdict in 2000, and it was rejected in 2007 by the Washington Supreme Court. In 2013, Yates's attorney filed a habeas corpus petition in federal district court stating that Yates was mentally ill and suffered from paraphilic disorder. And we talked about paraphilic disorder last week with Jerry Buck Inman. So I thought that was pretty interesting as well, having that, those weird sexual desires. Yeah, yeah. Now, because of this, they argued that Yates was predisposed to committing these crimes. In July of 2015, the Washington State Supreme Court again rejected the effort to overturn the death penalty conviction. However, in 2018, the Washington Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty actually violated the state's constitution, and Yates' sentence, as well as all other death row inmates, was commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. You have to be kidding me. Yep, so he is still in prison, no chance for parole, but somebody challenged in the state whether the death penalty was constitutional, and the court ruled that it was not. So him and every other inmate that was on death row in Washington State Penitentiary commuted down. They'll be in prison forever, but no more death penalty. So no one in the state of Washington at this point from 2018, can. it's just like that state went to not supporting the death penalty. Yeah, and there was also um, a representative there. His name was Jay Inslee. I believe it was around 2013 or 14. I think he was the governor, but he said he was going to hold off on all state executions because essentially for a state to execute somebody, like it costs a bunch of money. And he's just kind of like, it's frivolous spending. So he kind of held off on it. And then in 2018, the Supreme Court was like, yep, yeah, it's not constitutional. We're not going to do it anymore. So he had this whole roller coaster ride of, am I going to die? Am I going to be in prison for the rest of my life? Appeals, things like that, and just ends up, hey, you're in prison for the rest of your life. We'll see you in 408 years. Or I'm not even sure. I think it might be more than that now. Yeah, you should have because, two more added on to that. Yeah, so I mean, we're looking at you know close to probably like 450 years in prison, which is insane. We could get all political here about, you know, the death penalty and everything, but I'm just going to keep it about the case and how I'm feeling and how I was so kind of excited when like Pierce County came in and was like, nope, death penalty for you. I feel kind of let down for the families in a sense that like he's kind of getting the last laugh. Like I got what I wanted and then you tried to fool me and now I still get what I want. Yeah, I think for me, and you know, I I know I've talked about it before on the podcast. I am personally not a huge fan of the death penalty. If all life is precious, all life is precious, right? Mm-hmm. However, even thinking that doing this podcast, I can definitely understand why somebody would want the death penalty and why somebody would be rooting for someone like Robert Lee Yates to get the death penalty. 
you know, and there have even been cases where I'm like, you know, I'm not really for it, but. Sounds like you should have gotten it. Or it doesn't bother me. It doesn't, right. it, it doesn't, doesn't bother me as much as I thought it would. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And like right now, like, like I don't feel one way or the other really, but I'm just like, now I just feel let down. Like I feel like the families have been let down by the state, but then I also get it at the same time of what the state was trying to do. But I think that um, we should dive into the deadbolt test here. Yeah. What do you, I'm going to ask you, what are you thinking? Where does this, where does this fall for you? So on the deadbolt test, this isn't super scary for me. This isn't something that's going to happen to me like some of the other cases where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm the prime suspect. I'm the candidate he's looking for. I need to watch my back. So I'm going to rate it about a five. But the turn of events in this case and how it all plays out has probably been one of my most favorites so far. So on like a scale of one to ten on the case, I give it a nine. Um, but like, as far as like checking my locks at night, I give it about a five. It's very creepy that someone like this can live out in the world and still have women victims. So again, that makes it scary for me, but like, I'm obviously not a sex worker. I'm not what he's looking for. So I don't feel like this is going to happen to me, but knowing that someone out there can con these women into making them feel some sense of security, take them away and put a plastic bag over their head, beat them, whatever and shoot them in the head, bury them by his bedroom window is disgusting. So on that, like, I love this case. I think it was a great one. Um, So I'll give it a five on the deadbolt test as far as being scary, but a nine for just the overall case and how cool it was. Where do you stand, John? Well, and before I get into it, I did just want to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, because again, I agree. I'm definitely not the, the demographic that this killer was going after going through this case. The one thing that really did stick in my head is that we need reform around sex work and we need, we need things in place so that these women, men in this industry, because it's not called the oldest profession for no reason, right? Like there have been prostitutes and sex workers forever. And I think what this really demonstrates this case is that there's a lack of protection for them, or they're almost looked at as like second class citizens. And that's what allows something like this to happen or allow someone to feel so brazen that like this group of people is less than human. And I can do this and get away with it because nobody's going to care. And luckily the police in Spokane did care and they did pursue this and they did catch that. But I think, you know, just speaks to, you know, maybe we have the opportunity in this country to do things a little bit differently around sex work to make it safer for, you know, the people who work in that industry and participate in it to make sure that, you know, things like this don't happen or don't happen as easily. That being said, for me, I'm going to put this at a five as well. And again, even though I'm not this killer's demographic, what puts it at a five for me is the fact that somebody could present themselves one way to the entire world and then be a monster when the sun goes down. I think we've talked about that before, but just the idea of that, like somebody can make you feel safe. Somebody can, you know, you're a military veteran. You've got five kids. You've got daughters. You're, you know, you remind me of my dad. And then next thing you know, you're in a car with this person because you feel like you can trust them and then something terrible happens. So I would put it at a five. I think I'm right there with you. But I am super glad that the case was interesting to you that you put it on nine because as I was going through this, I was like, there's so many twists and turns here. It's crazy. Yeah, it kind of kept me on my toes the whole time. You know, I've said before that I don't, I kind of skim through notes, but I don't really dive into them because I genuinely like the surprise factor as we go through this. And so this one just, it's like reading a, thriller novel where you just want more and more and more and it's like okay that's not it like what else can possibly happen so i really really enjoyed this case it was a good one i feel like i did you justice i brought you something good we are both at a five on the deadbolt test but we want to know where does the spokane serial killer robert lee yates fall on your deadbolt test you can reach out to us on instagram we're at check the locks pod twitter at check the locks facebook join our facebook group we are officially over 400 members and everybody in there is absolutely awesome i have so much fun i olivia i know you're in there interacting with people as well it's just so awesome to see this community growing and everybody in there is so great but we want to hear from you let us know on the socials where did this case fall on your deadbolt test and why definitely let us know and olivia I think this would be a perfect time to read a five-star review. What do you think? I love reading the five-star reviews. And I love hearing what people have to say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But mostly the good. 
So this week's five-star review comes from Ghost in the Bourbonite, a.k.a. Nan, um, said, Really enjoying this pod. It has been fun to see how quickly John and Olivia have settled into a good on-air rapport, and the cases so far have been interesting. The most recent episode, Check the Crawl Space, needs to be a regular feature. Keep it up, y'all. So thank you, Ghost in the Bourbonite, a.k.a. Nan, for leaving us a five-star review, and we will certainly be talking about more crawl spaces. Oh, 100%. I think crawl spaces have kind of become a, a little bit of a theme on this show, so we will definitely get into more hot crawl space action. But Ghost in the Bourbonite, a.k.a. Nan, just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to leave us those kind words. Every review helps. It gets the show out in front of more people and in recommendations on Apple Podcasts. So again, the fact that you took the time to help us out really means the world. We would love to send you some stuff. We've got stickers. We've got magnets. Olivia, we got new buttons that are coming. I didn't tell you about them yet, but they are going to be here on Thursday. So I'm going to send you some of those. You're hiding new swag from me? I always send you a picture when it comes in. I know you do. I'm excited. I can't wait to see. But Nan, we want to send you some of this stuff as well. So please, again, make sure you're hitting us up on the socials. Instagram, check the locks pod. Twitter, check the locks. Hit us up on the Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. And if you are not a social person, head over to checkthelockspod.com. Click that email button. Send us an email. And we would love to send you some free gear. So again, really, really appreciate it. And if you head over to checkthelockspod.com, make sure you hit that voicemail button because we want to hear from you through those voicemails as well. Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the show, what is the best way to do that? Go to the Apple Podcast app, click all five stars, write us a review, let us know what you think, send us some good vibes, and maybe your review will be the next one read on Check the Locks Podcast. That's right. Make sure you're leaving that five-star review. Also, on that Apple Podcast app, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you get all the alerts about the show, new episodes coming out. That is it for this week's episode. That is number 12 in the books. Thank you so much for hanging out with us for another episode. Join us next week as we dive into another truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, do not forget to check the locks. We will see you next week. I'm up and out.